Well, we're continuing our series, like I said, for, <clears throat> for the Christmas season leading up to uh, next week, which is Christmas Eve. Christmas Eve doesn't land on a Sunday very often, so it's going to be kind of, kind of neat to do that. Uh, but we're calling this series Prepare Him Room, uh, and that's kind of the, the theme that we're trying to go with is to prepare our hearts for this, right? The, the season is crazy. It's busy. Lots of things to go to, lots of parties to have, lots of good things and maybe some hard things depending on where your situation is and what, what Christmas may bring up for you. For some, it might be joyful. For others, it might be less joyful. So uh, ultimately, though, what we're preparing for as we celebrate Christmas Day as Christians is the birth of Jesus and what that means for us. Christmas is not in and of itself the main thing. It's really a, a way to point our hearts every year to the main person in our lives, which is Christ, and, and think about and reflect on his birth and what that means for our lives. So last week, well, what we're doing through the series, through we've, we're doing three weeks in this. Last week we started it, this week, and then next week we'll wrap it up. Um, what we're doing is we're looking at kind of the big picture of Jesus's coming and the main things that, that come out of that for us. So last week we looked at primarily Matthew's gospel and we looked at what the kingship of Jesus means, what it means for Jesus to be born our king. And uh, we, we talked through that, that whole issue last week. Today we're going to take another major theme, which is that Jesus is our Emmanuel. And that word is one you probably only hear primarily at Christmas time, but Emmanuel means God with us as we'll see in, in Matthew chapter one. And so what we're looking at today is what it means for Jesus to be God and human. And the, fa- the fact that Jesus Christ is God and man is a, is a life-changing and ultimately salvation-producing reality for us. So we are looking at that today. That's what we're gonna explore as, as we uh, dive into the scriptures. So, if you want to turn to Matthew 1 with me, we're going to pick it up in some familiar verses, verses 18 through uh, 23. And we'll read these, and they're, f- they're familiar if you've been in church, at least during Christmas. Um, it's the, the story of the, the announcement of Jesus' birth to uh, Joseph. Um, and so it says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed, which is an old-fashioned word for uh, engaged, but in a more legal legal sense than what we think of. When she had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. So in this passage, we see the announcement of Jesus's uh, conception and, and future birth being uh, given to Joseph 
uh, to, to tell him, don't divorce Mary. This is, this is God's work. Um, and ultimately, though, Matthew points us to a fulfillment of the scriptures, points us to the fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. And chapter Isaiah 7 says in, in advance, hundreds of years before these, these moments, so hundreds of years before Jesus was born, it was promised that a virgin would conceive and bear a son, that there would be this miraculous thing that happens, um, that, that this baby is born uh, from a woman who doesn't have a husband, and, and they will call his name Emmanuel. And now Emmanuel, of course, Matthew gives us some context into what that means. He puts a little parentheses in there and at the end of verse 23 and says, that means God with us. So here's the point. Um, the only way humanity, sinful humanity, sinners like me and you, people who are uh, just disconnected from God because of our sin and rebellion, the only way we can be saved forgiven of sin and brought into a relationship that's reconciled to God again is if we have a savior who is both fully God and fully human. God with us. God in body. God in human form. And that person must be one person. There's no other way we can be saved. And this is the point that, that the Bible makes again and again, that there is one way to salvation. It is through Emmanuel, God with us. The, we see that, the need for that, all throughout the Old Testament scriptures. We see the need for a savior in the fact that the animal sacrifices of the Old Testament could never actually cover sins. They had to keep going through this rodeo every year over and over again, bringing these animals to stand in their place and die on their behalf, which seems really unfair, right? Which is kind of the point. Um, that, that something else dies so we don't have to, but that never actually covered sin. And so the Old Testament people of God had to deal with that whole messy business over and over. And then we see that in addition to that, there was no human ruler, no human king, no, no person who could stand in the place of the people and actually redeem them. Every king of Israel's history failed in some way and in some ways massively and in other ways less so, but they all failed to be the true savior. And so there had to be salvation somewhere else. And that is through God being united to humanity in the person of Jesus Christ. And that's really what Christmas reminds us of, points us to, that, that we need Jesus as, as he is the Emmanuel, the God with us, the fully God, fully man, a uh, person who could truly redeem us from our sins. I think it's important for us to, to distinguish what the Bible teaches from some other ideas and Jesus is not portrayed in the scriptures as half God, half man. It's not a demigod in, like, he, like the Greek mythology would present, like characters you may have heard of, like Hercules was a demigod. He was half God, half man. And they had this conception of the gods being able to have relations with women on earth and then have these super strong people that had extra, extraordinary power but weren't fully God. But that's not how the Bible portray portrays Jesus. He's not a, a half God, half man. 
He's not in that way. It is fully God and fully man, which in our brains doesn't add up. The math doesn't seem to work there for us. But it's the truth. And there are many things that the scriptures teach that we don't fully grasp or understand, but we receive them by faith because it's what God says. And there are things we just don't totally get. doesn't make it not true. Our ability to understand something fully doesn't make the truth or falsehood of that thing one or the other. And so what I want to do is I want to take us out of Matthew, which he, he, I wanted to start here because he's the one, the gospel writer who uses that phrase, Emmanuel. But then I want to I actually take us to John's gospel today to spend most of our time there because uh, all the gospels, all the, and by gospels I mean these four books of the New Testament that tell us about the life of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, four, first four books of the New Testament, all focus on the life, ministry, teaching, ultimately death and resurrection of Jesus. But they all take it from a different point of view. They all go at it from a different angle. And we said last week that Matthew's gospel, the angle he takes is that Jesus is king, that he's the king of Israel and indeed the whole world. Mark's focus, for what it's worth, is that Jesus is the servant uh, of, of uh, humanity that came into the world to be not served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Luke's focus is on the humanity and compassion of Jesus Christ. But John's focus is on the divinity or the godness of Jesus Christ. And, and that, that is a, a thread all throughout John's gospel. You can't read John's gospel without running into the reality of Jesus being God. And I, I remember years ago listening, watching a, a show back on, it was on Comedy Central. It's called The Col- Colbert Report. Um, I don't know if you ever watched The Colbert Report. Uh, Miranda has evidently. Uh, but I, I loved that show and it was just funny. But he would always, Stephen Colbert, when he was funny, had that show, right? I don't, I'm not a fan so much anymore. But uh, he, he always had an interview uh, towards the end of the show. And there was one, one point where he had an interview with a New Testament professor of something at a, at a college in North Carolina who wasn't a believer. And he made this whole point that John, John's gospel is the point in which Jesus becomes God. And his, his whole argument is that Jesus was not seen as God until 100 or, so, or 90 or so years after his life. And then the myth kind of grew into this thing where now he's God. That's not true actually. And uh, I was uh, kind of impressed at the fact that Stephen Colbert pushed back on that um, and, and really argued with him on this because it's not true. Matthew gets to the fact that he's God. We just read it in the first chapter. M- Mark deals with the fact that Jesus is God. So does Luke. They all do. But John's focus is that. That's, the, that's why some of these critical scholars will say, well, John is the only one who gets there, but that's just because they don't read with, with clarity. Um, and so John does get us to the point very clearly and everyone agrees, believer and non-believer who has studied these things, agrees that John's gospel's theme is that Jesus is God. And so we see that from the very beginning to the very end of the gospel of John. But we're going to look at the first chapter, just the first 18 verses actually of the first chapter. So if, you're, if you have a Bible, you can turn there with, you, with us here and uh, we'll, we'll look at it here. Um, basically, this section is broken into two parts. Jesus is fully God and then Jesus is fully man. 
So not complicated, not a complicated outline. Uh, But the first 13 verses get us to the point that Jesus is fully God. So let's read verse one to five, and then we'll stop and talk through that. It says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So here's what John begins his gospel by explaining and showing. That Jesus Christ is fully God because Jesus Christ is the creator of all things. The only one who could truly create all things would have to be God, right? Someone who exists outside of time and space, someone who exists outside of that which is made, has to be the one to initiate the making. And so he's making the point that because Jesus was in the created uh, creation of the world, was involved in speaking the world into existence, that he is, in fact, God himself. He begins his account by calling Jesus the Word. That's from the Greek word for that is called, that's uh, pronounced logos or logos. And that Greek word has a range of meaning, but the, the word logos is translated word because that's the most literal translation of, the, of that word. But it really means a, uh, uh, an eternality, a, a permanence, a, uh, uh, someone who has always existed. And so what John is getting to here is that, that Jesus Christ is God because he is in the beginning the Word, and the Word was with God, and not just with God, but was God. And so he makes this clear point. He calls it out in the first verse that Jesus, as the second member of the Trinity, as we would understand it from the Scripture's teaching, that there is Father, there is Son, and there is Holy Spirit, and each of these make up one God in three persons. Again, another mystery of the Bible that our heads have a hard time wrapping around. But Jesus Christ is with the Father in the creation of the world and is in fact described here as the Word because he is the one who actively spoke the world into existence. The whole language of the first five verses gets us back to or harkens back to Genesis 1. Genesis begins with these words, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. John begins his gospel by saying, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He's calling our minds back to the book of Genesis from the very outset of the created world, and he's making the point that Jesus was not only present, but was actively making all things. That's what verse 3 says. All things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made, which is kind of an awkward sentence, right? But what he's saying is is clear. The, The whole world was made through Jesus, and without Jesus, nothing was made. He's just saying the same thing twice, kind of in a positive way and a negative way. 
there in verse 3. And then he says in verse 4 that in him was life, and the life was the light of men, and the light shines in the darkness. Again, calling us back to Genesis. The first thing God made, the first thing God said was let there be light. And here we have Jesus as the very one not only creating light, but being the light that gives life to all. That, that's, that's the beauty of this story. It's connecting back to Genesis. Light is required for life. God made the light before he made anything else. And everything is dependent on light. And now we're seeing John apply that to the Lord Jesus Christ. Look down at verse 9 through 13, and he's going to continue talking about this, this issue of light. It says, verse 6 through 8, by the way, just kind of is a parenthesis in the fact that John the Baptist is not this light. He's not this Savior. Okay, so we're going to skip over those, just not because they're not important, but because we're going to focus on, on Jesus as God here. So 9 through 13 gets us back to that. He says, the true light which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world. And the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. This is interesting because while John begins in the first five verses dealing with primarily the creation of the physical world, here he's now connecting Jesus to the spiritual life and light that he gives. I love that John refers to Jesus here as the true light, which means that everything that light points us to points us to a greater thing which is Jesus. So I know it's a bit cloudy out today and it's a little dismal out there, but when you see the sun rise every day, morning after morning, and you see the beauty of the light that he's created in the world, yes, that's true light in a sense that it's real and it's making the, the earth survive and live and give, giving all this life to us, but it is meant to excuse me, point us to a greater light. <clears throat> excuse me, caught something there. It's pointing us to a greater light. It's pointing us to the true light that gives light to everyone, yes, in a creation sense, but also in a spiritual life sense, giving us actual life eternally. That's the point that he makes in these 9 through 13. He's telling us, that those who receive him, those who believe in his name, those who trust in him for eternal life are given the status of being children of God. Not people born of blood or the will of the flesh or the will of man, but born of God. True children of God adopted into his family through Jesus Christ. This point that John makes is, is also made, not, not just in John, but elsewhere in the scriptures as well. And it's the point that the apostle Paul makes in the book of Colossians, chapter 1, verse 15 through 20. 
there, you don't have to turn there, but Paul writes this. He says, in the, he, Jesus, he's talking about, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For, catch this, for by him, by Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether, they're, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Jesus and for Jesus. And he is before all things. And, he, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that everything, that in everything he might be preeminent for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Did you catch that in verse 19? Colossians 1, 19. In him, in Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. He possesses all that God is in himself. And through him, verse 20, to reconcile to himself all things whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Jesus is fully God. The Bible clearly teaches this point in John 1 and in many other places. And so that's the first thing, right? Just get that in in your head, that Jesus is fully God. Now, we got to deal with the second half of this, which is that Jesus is fully man. Going back to John 1, verse 14 through 18, He spends uh, about one paragraph on the fact that Jesus is fully man. He spends two paragraphs or so on the fact that he's fully God, probably because his emphasis is to really make that point, hit that point home. But in verse 14 through 18, he says this, that the word, so the eternal God who existed and created all things, became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This is he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. This is Jesus as fully man and fully God. The word, the eternal God, becomes man, took on flesh, means took on the fullness of humanity, and dwelt among us. He lived a human life on the earth. He was, was with us fully and truly. That phrase, dwelt among us, is rooted to the idea of the Old Testament tabernacle, which is the idea that God's glory and presence was seen among the people as they would set up this big tent in their camp, and that that was the special place that God would dwell among them. But in Jesus, he is the fulfillment of that tabernacle and ultimately the temple that would replace it, that he is actually the true presence of God among his people. 
And as God with us, as the word became flesh and dwelt among us, he displays two things. He displays God's presence and glory, which we've talked about. And secondly, he displays the grace of God. It says, for from his fullness, from all that he has, we have received grace upon grace. John doesn't say we've received grace, period, but we've received grace upon grace, meaning this endless heaping amount of grace, grace greater than all our sin. And then he goes on to show us that the law, which is what condemns us before God because of our inability to keep it through Moses, that law that God gave to us through Moses is is actually counteracted by Jesus's grace and truth as he gives us grace upon grace so that we're not condemned under the law but are given grace in, in Christ. That is because Jesus would ultimately go on to bear the burden of the law for us. He lived under the law. He obeyed every part of it. He did so perfectly because he was God and man. And he took all of our sin upon himself to the cross. That is made clear in Romans chapter 8, verses 1 to 4. Again, you don't need to turn there, but let me read these for you. He says, Paul writes, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Okay, so no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. How is that possible? Paul answers that question. He says, because the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Okay, so we're not condemned, if you're tracking with his argument here, we're not condemned because the law of the Spirit sets us free. Okay, but how does that happen? Verse 3 says, Because God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, meaning our sinful humanity, could not do. Let that sink in for a second. God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. God did something greater for us. Continuing on, he says, by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So God has done what we could never do for ourselves. That Jesus Christ in the flesh, that is in human body. Now, Paul says he was brought into the likeness of sinful flesh. He's in the likeness of sinful flesh because he didn't have sinful flesh, but he looked like the rest of us. He was truly in the flesh. He was truly a human being. He, had a, he possessed a body, but it wasn't a sinful body. It wasn't a sinful flesh. So he came in the likeness of us, though. He looked like us. He lived like us. He was among us. 
And as he took upon that body, he condemns sin, not us. Because the righteous requirements of the law, which should have been fulfilled by us, but couldn't be because of our sin nature, he, not having a sin nature, fulfills for us. And so then everything he does, he does in our place. (coughs) Excuse me. First Timothy 2.5 says it this way. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. The reason that Jesus can be the mediator between us and God is because he is the, the God-man. He stands both for God and for us. And that's what it means for him to be Emmanuel, God with us. So here's the question to, pl- to apply all this. Why does this matter? Well, it's because, in, in short, because we cannot represent ourselves before God as sinless people. We needed God to become man, to be our mediator. <coughs> the Westminster larger catechism. Uh, And I actually think it was interesting, the timing of this, because our kids in kids' church are working through a different catechism, but they're going to be dealing with a similar question this week. But the larger catechism asked this question, why was it necessary that the mediator should be God and man in one person? And the answer is, so that the proper works of each nature, meaning the proper thing that God can do and man can do, might be accepted by God for us and relied on by us as the works of the whole person. (coughs) Excuse me, sorry. So Jesus' person and work in living uh, sinless human life by dying on the cross as our substitute, by rising again from the dead, is accepted by God for us on our behalf as if we did it, even though we didn't. And that must be relied on by us. We must trust in it through faith to be reconciled to God. Another way that this can be expressed is through the words of C.S. Lewis, and he's got a helpful explanation of this in his book, Miracles. And there he writes that the central miracle asserted by Christians is the incarnation. They say that God became man. That's what incarnation means, that God became man. Lewis writes, every other miracle prepares for this or exhibits this or results from this. In the Christian story, God descends to reascend. He comes down down from the height of absolute being into time and space, down into humanity, but he goes down to bring, um, to bring us up again and to bring the whole ruined world up with him. That's why the Christmas story matters in part. That's why Jesus coming into the, into the world matters so deeply because it is the only way that God and sinners are reconciled once and for all. 
the only way that he, you and I can be right with God is because God became man and dwelt among us and has given us grace upon grace. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for sending Jesus in human flesh. It is only through this that we can have a mediator between us and you. We pray, God, that our hearts would be tender to that truth today, that we would see the importance of it in our lives, that we would turn our hearts to trust in you and to give our lives over to you. And I pray, God, that there would be a lot of joy in us today because of this, that we are not condemned, that we are able to be right with you, though we did nothing in ourselves to deserve it, all because you did the work on our behalf through Christ. Would you give us that reminder today as we go to the table in a few moments, as we remind ourselves of the eating and drinking, that you have done all of it for us, that you are with us through, through Christ and his spirit, that you have paid the debt we owed to you. And I pray that we would walk out of this room today in joy and celebration and, and knowing uh, that we are, if we've trusted you, we are right with you forever. We are connected to you forever. And we thank you for that. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.